The Lord be with you. Each of us practices a life of faith for a whole host of reasons. Things like community, direction, purpose, wisdom, hope, encouragement, assurance maybe. It's a long list. But it wouldn't hurt now and then if we could get answers to some of life's questions. Maybe not all the answers, but maybe some of them, right? In our weekly practice, we read these gospel stories together, beautiful and strange, God's amazing promises, hard truths, mysterious and powerful images. And each week, we bring our prayers and our questions and our worries and our troubles, the details of our personal history and the community around us, the stories from the global news cycle. And sometimes those gospel messages speak straight to our heart. Boy, is that great. Other times, these short passages puzzle us and test us, challenging our assumptions and our expectations. More often than I'd like, I don't find a tidy package of an answer that I was looking for. And really, if we let this stuff in, these stories actually start to complicate our lives. And yet, the Jesus we meet in the Gospels introduces us to a living and active God who loves the world. The Christ we meet in the Gospels invites us to a way of being and living that changes everything. Last week, Ryan drew our attention to a big shift in Luke's Gospel. Chapter 9, verse 51. The place where the work of Jesus takes a sharp turn. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is a bit of a strange turn of phrase, but it points us to a fresh urgency in the Jesus story. In the chapters which follow encouragement and the promises of God's patience and mercy, yeah, they're there. But also ominous warnings, unsettling even. Warnings against hypocrisy and greed, calls to repentance, watchfulness, perseverance. There's an increased necessity and urgency that presents itself in Jesus' teaching. A little more with every step he takes towards Jerusalem. To his disciples, maybe he's a little more distant, kind of unnerving with a far-off stare and a strange look on his face, mysterious and unpredictable. He won't be sidetracked. He won't be distracted along the way because Jesus knows his work. This is the path that leads to the cross. Today's gospel reading continues with that same unrelenting purpose. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. We don't know this story outside of Luke's telling. It doesn't turn up anywhere else. But we can make out enough details. The local Roman tyrant employing brutal violence, visiting terror on some humble pilgrims, 
People from little villages in the Galilean countryside mingling their blood with their sacrifices. A sickening picture of worshipers cut down and murdered, a violation, a desecration of a sacred place, even while they perform their rituals, present their offerings, and whisper their prayers. People in the crowd must have quite understandably supposed that Jesus would have some sort of reaction to this tragic news. After all, the rabbi's hometown of Nazareth is in Galilee. These are his people. Surely the spilled blood of worshiping Galileans will draw out some sort of response from the rabbi, right? Such distressing and disturbing news in times like this, we seek out insight and clarity and instruction from wise people. How do we process such a thing? What does the rabbi have to say about all this? Maybe he can even help these people understand why terrible things like this happen in the first place. Or why God let this happen to such simple, honest people from no place special. Is there a way to avoid things like this? Are there precautions one might take? Words of comfort, maybe, Jesus? What have you got for us? Now that you mention it, why do such terrible horrors visit themselves on the human race? And it seems like we find ourselves asking this question as we ponder the troubles of our own world. The slice of history we currently occupy, the daily news feed that we read week after week, schools and towns with regular-sounding names transformed into places of terror and death, Symbols of grief and loss, mosques, synagogues, temples, churches, buses, trains, and city streets, each devastated by hatred and unspeakable violence. This isn't an abstract notion or a hypothetical. It's not a difficult idea or an obscure and strange first-century cultural tradition I need to explain to you, because this is the story of the human race, as near to us as any other part of our experience as God's children. The question of the spilled blood of Galileans remains as fresh and real and heartbreaking as any of the tragedies we could name today. Their blood still cries out from the earth. And Jesus gets right to his answer. And, well, honestly, it's disappointing. Jesus doesn't give us a satisfying or encouraging or handy set of verses we might use in times like these. Something I could get one of the blanchettes to embroider for me, maybe. Words to share with grieving survivors. It would be really nice if I had a plug-and-play answer to questions like this. A simple yet profound bit of verbiage that simply and beautifully explains how the mechanical features of the universe interact with the social and political landscape of the human race. But we don't get any such thing. Instead, Jesus asks his own question. Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. 
Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? Instead of talking about the divine mysteries of the cosmos and the problem of evil, Jesus challenges the people in the crowd, assuring them that, yes, indeed, there are many ways to die. Humans are vulnerable and fragile. There are times when people find themselves in the wrong tower at the wrong time. And sometimes terrible people commit horrific acts of evil. Humans' lives get cut short for all kinds of reasons all the time. I suspect that there's a part of us that really wants to talk about these tragic events as though they're other people's fate right now. But the real question is, what about you? You living people who still have breath in your lungs and feet on the earth, will you repent while there is still time? The steely-eyed Jesus with his face set to Jerusalem has his own priorities and he will not be deterred. Then he tells the story of the fruitless fig tree. And that's more of the same. Year after year after year, the fig tree bears no fruit. And the owner of the vineyard is justifiably annoyed and frustrated and perplexed. And he's ready for drastic measures. The axe is the tool for the job. A fig tree with no fruit is just a waste of soil. I guess it's just a ficus. But that persuasive gardener saves the day, at least for a while. Sir, let it alone for one more year, and until I dig around it and put manure on it. Anyone who knows anything about fig trees knows what a preposterous and an excessive treatment this is. More than any fig tree should ever require. In four years, this useless tree is getting all the horticultural pampering a plant could ever ask for. Tilling and digging and nutritious and delicious manure. Every opportunity, really. Every chance and then some to draw in rich nutrients and produce fruit. If that doesn't work well, even the gardener is out of ideas. The burn pile or the compost heap. Lent is the season of confession and mindfulness. We are such distracted people. Worried by so many troubles. Entertained by so many vanities. So quickly and easily losing sight of the things that matter taking for granted so many mercies. Lent is that time of year when we try and remind ourselves what really matters. It's the time when the church takes the effort to remind us that we are made of the stuff of the earth, and one day we will join our ancestors in the ground. Our days are numbered, and none of us get to know our own number. Our time on earth is precious. And our maker calls us to live fruitful lives in the time we have. Lent is also a time of repentance. And maybe when you hear a passage like this, you don't like hearing that word. For many of us, a word like repentance doesn't bring to mind an image of fruitfulness or life. 
Maybe you've heard some terrible religious lessons over the years, giving you the impression that repentance is some sort of groveling, a bitter pill that you have to swallow, the promise not to do bad things anymore. But boy, that's a paltry, empathetic definition of repentance. Because repentance is an invitation to truly live. It's not a thing we grudgingly do. Repentance is a reformed life. It doesn't make it easy, but it is a new perception of reality. Repentance is becoming awake in a sleepy world. It's a way to shape and measure and honor and value our days. It's a way of seeing our world and all the other people in it, our place in it, Repentance is about having fresh eyes. It's about pressing into God's possibilities and priorities for the world. Abandoning so many of the world's empty promises. If we can be awake and clear-eyed and aware about our fragile, beautiful lives, what else might we wake up to, come alive to? Repentance is the pursuit of of a fruitful life. Like stubborn fig trees, we are alive because of so much grace. Every day is a gift. And like that fig tree, we are the recipients of even more patience, tender care, tilling, fertilizing. Even our most fruitful moments are because we have received so many mercies. Repentance is eyes to see those mercies in our life. Repentance is the joy of truly living. About 13 or 14 years ago, I met a friend named Claire. She lives on the Sunshine Coast. In all the time I've known her, she has constantly amazed me with her capacity for faith her deep spiritual insight. Some of you may have met Claire. She was here for my ordination quite a while ago. Claire has the gentle heart and soul of a mystic. In many ways, she's been a prophet in my life, my spiritual mentor. In 2018... Oh, this one's hard. Sorry. Not sorry. In 2018, Claire told me she had breast cancer. And through all the miseries of radiation, chemotherapy, surgeries, and treatment, we hoped and we prayed for Claire's recovery. This last month, she only finished her last surgery, and we are delighted to say that she's been doing so well. The amazing thing is, through it all, she has sent Buffy and I the most incredible text messages. A A few days ago, she sent me this one. I can do this, for reals. It's been a long journey. Ten months, it's had its hard parts. And I've had God literally all throughout it. I know him in a way I didn't know possible. I wouldn't trade it for anything. My cancer 
has only been a blessing. Well, one thing I know is I walk differently. I think differently. Because I know how much he loves me. Friends, I can think of no better embodiment of living repentance. What a gift to be a person like that. What a gift to know a person like that. We are fragile and we are beautiful. And yes, there are numerous ways that our lives can be snatched from us. But we are also in the care of the one who made us and loves us. And the one who finds ways to nourish us in the most surprising ways. The one who celebrates a life well lived and calls us to a life of repentance. Thanks be to God.